you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. And we will begin by reading the text. God's Word says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Lord God, we bow our hearts before you and we are the first to recognize that we do not deserve to be here, to be hearers of your word and attenders of it, to proclaim the word But we recognize and we look to Christ and we see that indeed while we are sinners who pray to ourselves and we meditate on our own thoughts apart from you, that we cling to our own authority when we make decisions apart from your word. When we look to ourselves and we cherish ourselves rather than Christ And yet, your word commends Christ to our hearts, and we see his righteousness and his perfection and his obedience for us. And so we delight in him, and we'd ask that in the boldness of Jesus Christ, we come to your word to be impressed with him. We ask that my heart and our hearts together would be rent, broken, that we might love Christ more. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. She was a gentle, compassionate, loving servant in the body of Christ. This sister in Christ stepped into my world to serve and encourage my wife, who was struggling physically for the energy to make it from day to day. Robin was fighting with her blood count, it's called anemia, while she was caring for three children, while I was going to seminary and working. And this sister in Christ stepped in to encourage, to minister, to serve, And we knew that she was very well serving and ministering in the body of Christ as well. But then she received word, we received word, that she was dying of cancer, tumor after tumor, literally exploding in her brain. And there would be no help offered from the medical world, none whatsoever. I recall that Robin's mother tended to her as she was dying in her last days while a tumor was literally bulging from her eye. It was a horrendous nightmare, a disease taking over from the inside out. And yet, quietly, 
singing hymns and reflecting on the goodness of God. While her body decayed, the grace of God in the ministry of the gospel continued to grow and increase and strengthen her. This was not due to some human achievement or human accomplishment or self-fulfillment, but it was the glory of the cross, the glory of the gospel that encouraged her heart, that Christ had paid for her sins, that Christ had stepped into this time and space to live a perfect life for her and had risen again from the dead to provide life in Christ. This was the encouragement that sustained her. Where do we find encouragement for gospel ministry? Where do we find the power? But in the power of the gospel. What we're saying is the power of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul recognized that the gospel came in the midst of the fires of affliction and hardship and suffering, and he writes to encourage them. I mean, if you look at Acts 16 and 17, he came to Thessalonica from Philippi in suffering. It was like a storm cloud that followed Paul so that everyone knew he was coming. That's how God brought attention to the ministry of the gospel in suffering. And he leaves because of suffering to continue encouraging the church. But he's wondering, is this church going to remain faithful? Did the word of God implant itself deep into the heart in the midst of this suffering? And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, he sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Verse 3, chapter 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are, not were, we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. It goes with the gospel. Hardship, difficulties, goes with the gospel because it unveils the glory of Christ in the midst of our weakness. And so Paul sends Timothy to encourage them. And particularly in chapter 1, we will see the power of the gospel at work. We're going to consider the power of God's sovereign grace in the gospel this Morning, we'll see three manifestations of the power of the gospel that's accomplished by the Holy Trinity. The power of the gospel accomplished by the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see in verse 1, the grace of God. We see in verse 3, that faith, uh, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope that's rooted in Christ, the power of the gospel, according to verse 5. And we see the Holy Spirit's ministry. We see the Holy Spirit's ministry in verse 5. We also see it in verse 6 with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity working in the ministry of the gospel. I pray that our hearts will be encouraged with the eternal sustaining power of God's sovereign grace in the gospel this morning so that you would increase in your love for the gospel, that you would cherish the gospel, meditate on the gospel, breathe in the sweet aroma of the gospel and be amazed at the glory of God in the gospel. Why? Because there may be times in your life where you're wondering, am I living in vain? Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, our coming to you was not in vain. It was full of substance because my life was centered around the gospel. There may be times you're wondering if you can endure affliction like Paul in chapter 2, verse 2. Shamefully treated, always suffered. And the gospel brings endurance. 
In chapter 4, Paul speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, the day of Christ, where the universe, the heavens and the earth, revolve around Christ very visibly and tangibly. And it is this gospel that rivets our attention on the glory of Jesus Christ to sustain us. The gospel is the theme in 1 Thessalonians. We see it in verse 5, in chapter 2, verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 8, in chapter 2, verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 2. Gospel, gospel, the personal work of Christ. This is what is sustaining, empowering, strengthening. It is interesting, too, that sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking the gospel is just for unbelievers. And indeed, Paul came and preached the gospel to the Thessalonians. Many of them were unbelievers who received the word and were saved. But he writes also to encourage them as believers. Look at chapter 2, if you would, with me at verse 9. 2.9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And we tend to think, well, that's the unbeliever. What a great ministry. Until you get to verse 12, and he continues his thought. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The ministry of the gospel did not stop with unbelievers receiving the word being brought into the kingdom, being brought into Christ. It continued with encouragement to believers that they might walk in a manner worthy of that gospel, worthy of Christ. So may we be encouraged in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Let's look at the first manifestation of the power of the gospel, the work of the Trinity to encourage our hearts in the ministry of the gospel. The first manifestation of that power is the grace of God. The grace of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Do you see grace? Grace to you and peace. You say, but how is that connected to the gospel? Well, it's clearly connected. In verse 5, he's continuing his... Uh, praise and thanksgiving in light of God's grace. And in verse 5, he says, The gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, if you will, it is our position in Christ because of the gospel ministry that we experience his grace. That's why you can say, In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. The gospel is the outworking of God's grace. Let's take a a moment to explore God's grace. We want to note God the Father sending His grace in Christ. The grace of God, we experience the gospel. Notice with me, it is a grace that comes from God. It comes in relationship with God. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.28, we notice... This grace belongs to Christ. Chapter 5, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It is a grace that belongs to Christ. And in this context, we see Christ's relationship with God the Father. In verse 1, again, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 17 books of the New Testament, we see this grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that this grace comes from God. In other words, this grace is a ruling grace. This grace is a divine grace. 
Let that verse settle in just for a little bit more. Just meditate on it. Verse 1 again. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the deity of Christ established here? This one preposition in guards and bounds God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ together so that the two titles, God and Lord, are shared, equated. And we see Father and Jesus Christ connected together in the sharing of this deity in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see even here Christ's eternal deity underlined very clearly. This grace then is a divine grace. But it is also a sovereign grace. Grace to you. Grace that is external. It is not inherent in man. It doesn't say that man earns it. It comes to the individual. It engages. It doesn't hover. It comes to you. It is independent. There is no approval of man. No manipulation of man. Man doesn't compel or move it. It's a grace that comes to him. It is God glorifying. We see that in verse 2. This whole text, by the way, falls out of this main verb, we give thanks, and then he says remembering in verse 3 and knowing in verse 4, and then these connectives, 4, 4, 4, 4. So that the remembering and the knowing comes out of giving thanks, and giving thanks comes out of grace. The word eucharisteo, grace, the root word, charis, uh, is the word for grace, and so thanksgiving is connected in the Greek word with grace, but it is fitting here that grace that comes to you responds in thanksgiving. Why? Because sovereign grace demands sovereign glory. God gives the grace. It's independent of us. It's all of Him. Who gets the glory? God does. And so He says we give thanks. And this is the whole ministry of God's grace in the gospel. It is sovereign. This grace is a king that conquers This grace is a victor that saves. This grace is an emperor that rules. And so the response of Paul is, we give thanks, we throw it to you. You may be asking, how can you say that grace is this conqueror, this victor, this emperor, this ruler? If you look with me in John chapter 1, verse 14, we've already noted that this grace belongs to Jesus Christ. But in John 1, 14, the dots are connected for us. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is grace? The glory of Jesus Christ. The Word come in flesh. It is Christ, His person, His work. This is grace. No wonder Paul responds by giving thanks to God. This grace then is a divine grace. This grace is a sovereign grace, having a sovereign rule, because it is a grace that God gives in the person and work of Jesus Christ for His glory. It comes to unmerited sinners, sinners who don't deserve it, Sinners who've demerited, sinners who've sinned against this glorious God, this grace comes in Christ. I want to be a little more impressed with grace. Not only is this grace a ruling grace, a sovereign grace, a divine grace, this grace 
brings about a fellowship with God. It brings unity with God. It is a relationship of grace. Notice again the preposition. Let's just draw it a little bit more and then we'll move on. He says again to the church, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace secures our unity with God. Think about that. Not only do we see that the the Father and the Son are equated in this glorious deity, but we also see that we are brought into a relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to be in Christ, grace, is to have all of God's resources, His saving resources at our disposal for His glory. For His glory. In other words, to be in Christ, we can say, God's righteousness is my righteousness. God's joy is my joy. God's life is my life. God's glory is my glory. And before you turn it backwards and try to make our glory His glory and our will His will and our joy His joy, it's clearly that because of our relationship with God that we experience His grace. Jeremiah Burroughs says it this way in the rare jewel of Christian contentment. The good of my life and comforts and my happiness and my glory and my riches are more in God than in myself. Look at me. I'm finite. I'm dying. I'm decaying. Look to God's infinite resources. If God has glory, I have glory. God's glory is my glory. If God has riches, then I have riches. If God is magnified, then I am magnified. If God is satisfied, then I am satisfied. God's wisdom and holiness is mine, and therefore His will must needs be mine, and my will must needs be His. This is not to promote ourselves. Remember, again, the context is God's sovereign grace coming to us so that we are placed in Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul responds in verse 2, We give thanks to God. We praise Him because we've been united with Him. Grace establishes a relationship, no doubt, with God, but it also secures us in peace with God. In peace with God. Peace isn't this just mystical harmony and feeling of, oh, I'm just calm now. Grace, in verse 1, brings peace. Grace to you and peace. Because it unites us with God, we have peace. We are no longer enemies. We have His resources of saving grace at our disposal. The gospel is this glorious grace of God that brings about this peace that grounds our faith, love, and hope in Christ, according to verse 3, that brings a powerful work of the gospel in verse 5 and brings deliverance in verse 10. This is what brings great peace. Grace brings peace so that when grace comes unto you, peace follows. In other words, peace enters no house that grace has not first entered. In other words, when grace conquers the kingdom, peace enters. Grace signs the peace treaty between God and man by securing God's power and presence in behalf of the enemy in Christ. If I could speak to the believer here for a moment, there is a tendency to think of the gospel as just for unbelievers. And if I could just press on and obey the word of God, Love Christ. But the text is overwhelmed with the glory of the gospel and our need for the gospel so that we may be more impressed with Christ. That we may enjoy His sanctifying grace in our lives. Jerry Bridges in The Discipline of Grace says it this way, We must not put the gospel on the shelf once a person becomes a new believer. He or she will have just as difficult a time 
believing that God relates to us every day on the basis of grace as a person has believing that God saves by grace instead of by works. So we must not only preach the gospel to ourselves every day, we must continue to teach it and preach it to those whom we may be discipling. We need the gospel. Otherwise, in our own flesh and strength, we try to live out the gospel. It's impossible. Beloved, is there any other message to hear? Is there any other position to be in than in Christ? Are you weighted down by the guilt of your sin? Do you feel that you're standing on the brink of hell? Then may you remember the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that because of Him, you can be said to be safe in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in the heat of trial, left with nothing but your life, or maybe your life is even threatened. Remember the gospel, for in the gospel you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're weak and worn, but you share in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're experiencing loneliness, but you're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're succumbed by doubts of hopelessness. And like chapter 2, verse 1, you're wondering if your life is in vain. Where's the weight and substance of my life? But by God's grace, you've been placed in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because of the gospel, because of Christ. And I speak to you, unbeliever in our midst, who thinks that somehow you can limp your way into heaven and just use God's grace as a crutch. It's me and God. This grace is a sovereign grace. There is no room for human partnership. Arthur C. Sustance in The Sovereignty of Grace says this, If man contributes any essential part towards his salvation, he effectively becomes his own savior. In truth, there is no gospel that is not entirely rooted in the sovereignty of God's grace in salvation. If we don't understand the sovereignty of God's grace, we come thinking we're pretty good, or I can mix up a little good works to help God out. To come to grace, to recognize our need of grace, is to come, as Ephesians 2 says, hopeless and helpless and without God in the world. So that we cry out when the gospel impacts our heart, Lord, Grant faith, grant new birth, give me the pulse of life, open my eyes to see the glory of Christ, and we come needy and helpless. John Flavel, in his book, The Method of Grace, writes this, What intolerable insolence and vanity would it be for a man that wears the rich and costly robe of Christ's righteousness, in which there is not one thread of his own spinning, to pride himself as if he had made it, and we're beholden to none of it. O oh man, thine excellencies, whatever they are, are borrowed from Christ. They oblige thee to him. But he can be no more obliged to thee who wearest them than the sun is obliged to him that borrows its light or the fountain to him that draws its water for his use and benefit. Christ, no wonder he says, we give thanks. All the glory goes to Christ because sovereign grace secures his sovereign glory. That's the first manifestation of the power of the gospel, the work of the Holy Trinity. We see the Father's work sending the grace in His Son. We turn now to the second power and manifestation of the gospel. It is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Look with me at verse 2 and 3. And we'll actually work through verse 5 to get the context. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We'll stop there. Notice, first of all, this beautiful, glorious triad that only is glorious because of the soil that it rests in, the root that it is anchored to, the foundation it stands on, Christ, verse 3. Notice, faith, love, hope, grounded in our Lord, that's His sovereignty, Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of salvation. You could say He is the Lord of faith. He is the Lord of love. He is the Lord of hope. There is no room for self-congratulation for this faith, love, and hope. It is grounded in Christ. Notice again in verse 5 that he notes the ministry and power of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. What does this faith look like and act like, we ask? Well, the gospel produces faith that is grounded in Jesus Christ. Again, notice in verse 3, this faith, this love, this hope is in him. It is built upon him. He's the soil. This faith, love, and hope, these wonderful synonyms that help us understand our relationship with Christ, grow out of Jesus Christ. He is the source and the object of this faith because of the ministry of the gospel. We're centered upon Him. We're grounded in Him. This gospel, though, produces a loving, confident faith. Not just an, it's not an intel, just an intellectual faith. Obviously, we understand the message of the gospel. It fully convinces us in verse 5. But this faith is accompanied by love and hope. It's a loving, confident faith. Christ saves, and faith rests on the work of Christ. Christ lives for us and in love cherishes Him. Christ gives us His sure promises in salvation and hope clings to Him. And indeed, while it is said to be your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope, we can say that God doesn't believe for me and yet it is because of Christ, in Christ, because of the gospel that this faith, love, and hope grows and springs to life. It produces also a living faith It's loving, confident in Christ, but it's also living. Look again at verse 3. Notice he says the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. That is, as we look at Jesus Christ, as we're grounded in Him, faith produces work and energy and vitality and life because it's grounded in Christ. He's the vine. We're the branch. And as we're grounded in the soil of Jesus Christ and as the gospel proclaims the glory of Christ, love cherishes Him. And what does it do? It labors. And hope, likewise, is steadfast and endures. This faith that works, the word work is the idea of, it's the word energia, it's just energy, strength, vitality. It springs from this gospel ministry. It springs from Christ. Uh, a few years ago, my mother had a couple uh, sets of bachelor buttons and tiger lilies, and frankly, I'll admit that I don't really know what they are. I could tell you anything about them. My wife enjoys flowers. But one day, we, we came back from a vacation, and we noticed that these bachelor buttons, which are normally about, oh, a pencil in thickness, was about as big as my finger. And instead of being uh, one to two feet tall, it was three to four feet tall. And then these tiger lilies had shot up from three feet to six feet tall, they're taller than me, and just kind of hung over this this big face (laughs) 
And I walked in to say, what happened to your flowers? They're giants. She told me that she had taken Starbucks coffee grinds and mixed them up in the soil. I don't know if that normally happens or they just, for the first time, got caffeine. (laughs) Whew! Shot up. They were full of vitality. When we're grounded in Christ, and this is what the gospel does, it produces a vitality of life in Christ, Christ's life. But notice that this love labors. It's a love that labors. This word describes more than just life and vitality. It describes strength and endurance amid the sweat, blood, and tears. It is hard work. Strenuous, sweat-producing labor. In other words, it requires this, this labor that's equated with love, requires passion and zeal to press through the hardship, the intensity, like running a marathon. I had a few friends ask me if I want to run a marathon next year, and I'm going, you know, the goal of running a marathon is not strong enough to drive me through a year of preparation. (laughs) But if you have that passion and zeal to bring you through the labor and hardship, great. (laughs) Don't say it like that, but that's, that's the idea, right? Well, this kind of love cherishes Christ. It's rooted and grounded in Christ so that it produces a passion and zeal that brings about faithfulness, that brings about endurance, that brings about faithfulness and exertion, sweat-producing labor. It's the kind of love that Christ had where he was so consumed with the Father that he drank the cup of wrath to the full. Or Paul, as he's expending his life ministering, to the, gospel, ministering the gospel to the Thessalonians, he says, I'm not just preaching it to you, but I'm imparting my life. It's giving everything. It's that kind of love for Christ. It's the kind of love that William Carey had when he sailed to India from England, lost his five-year-old son, his wife became mentally deranged, labored seven years for his first convert, lost years' worth of precious translation in a fire, but he still pressed on. The Donnerham Judson, America's first foreign missionary, went to Burma. He lost a six-month-old baby, spent a year and a half in death prison, lost his wife from fever, suffered a, a breakdown, and waited five years for his first convert. You see, duty is not strong enough to bring us through that kind of intensity and labor, but loving Christ is. And it's grounded in Christ. Hebrews 10.24 says this, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So that as we're involved in ministry, as we're here together corporately around the Word of God, we are promoting the glory of Christ to one another's hearts, stirring the love of Christ so that we can continue in the labor of ministry, whatever the hardship and trials. There's a third aspect of this living faith produced by the gospel, and that is steadfastness of hope. Hope draws from the promises of Christ, the sure promises of Christ, anchored in his person. He's God. The God-man secured my salvation. It is sure. I have his promises. And those promises sustain us through the affliction and hardship. John Kessister was 26 years old. His three-year-old child had been playing with a kitten. This is... An article written in New York Times, May 20th, 1905. 26 years old, sees his daughter playing with the kitten. The kitten runs and jumps into a cistern, squeezed through a hole, and these boards laid over the top of it. And this three-year-old had run over there, 
removed a board, leaned in to get the kitten, and fell into the, the depths of this water contained in the cistern. John, running to the cistern, yelling for help, jumped into the cistern. Now, while he was holding his daughter above the water, it says the neighbors were running to his help, securing poles, ropes, and ladders. And they were able to save the child, but by the time they grabbed the child from his hands, exerted the last of his energy and sunk below the depths to drown. What sustained this man? Loving the child, hope that help was coming? What sustains you and I in the midst of affliction? Whatever affliction that comes in company with your life to promote the gospel? Well, you say, well, hope. But where do I get hope? Love. But where do I get love? Faith. But where does faith come from? But in Christ and in the gospel. And so we need the gospel. We promote it to one another's hearts. We proclaim the gospel to our hearts when we wake up in the morning instead of listening to our hearts and the grumbling and complaining that gets me in so much trouble and leads my life down the wrong path the very first moment of the day. And we take the gospel and we proclaim it to our hearts. What? The person and work of Christ. And we glory in Christ. And our faith grows and our love cherishes Him. And we hope and remain steadfast and labor we see the energy and vitality of his life in us. I hope you cherish the gospel. I hope you proclaim the gospel. We've seen the sovereignty of God's grace bestowed in Christ. We have seen the person and work of Christ as in the soil and root of Christ. We are grounded. We see faith, love, and hope rooted and flowing out of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We turn then to the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, the gospel proclaims these things to us. The sovereign grace of God, Christ, is the ground and object of our faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. So the third, the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to first notice that the power of the Spirit through the gospel, it captivates the mind. It captivates the mind. It affects the behavior, but it does that by captivating our mind. Look at verse 5 with me. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The gospel came with the power of the Spirit, with full conviction. It captured the mind. Notice this, this statement again. It, it's good to dwell on, meditate on. Sometimes we just cross over and miss it. It's a precious jewel here in verse 5. Our gospel came to you. It came to you. He doesn't say Paul and Timothy and Titus, we, we came to you. He says the gospel is personified. The gospel personified came to you. It visited you. Oh, indeed, it came, he says, in, not only in the word. The word is the preaching message of the apostles. But the gospel personified comes actively through the preaching of the words so that we can say this, the gospel wielded the preacher, wielded the heart of the preacher. Why? How? Because of the power of the Spirit. That's what the gospel does. It visited them. It brought a day of visitation. It brought saving grace. It wielded the preacher. And the gospel awakened the hearers. So it wielded the preacher and wakened the hearers. How? The Spirit. Look again. It came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with Full conviction. It captured the mind. 
a heart that was bent against Christ, loving self, has now been awakened, convinced that Christ is everything. The power of the gospel. Charnock, Stephen Charnock in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, Puritan on the later end, writes about the great distance between the power that God exerted in creation, bringing being out of nothing, and says there's a much greater distance between that, which is a great accomplishment, no doubt. You don't downplay that. But the glory of the gospel in bringing a sinner dead in sins to life and taking a sinner bent on hell. Hell is his only course of life to heaven and bringing life to spiritual deadness. He says there's a much greater distance. And he says this is why creation is said to be wrought by his hands and heavens by his fingers, but salvation by his arm. He continues, There is in every natural man a stoutness of heart, a stiff neck, unwillingness to good, forwardness to evil. An infinite power quells the stoutness, demolishes these strongholds. He continues, To have a heart full of the fear of God that was just before filled with the contempt of Him. To have a sense of His power, an eye to His glory, admiring thoughts of His wisdom, a faith in His truth that had lower thoughts of Him and all His perfections. To make a stout wretch willingly fall down, crawl upon the ground, and adore that Savior whom before He outdared is a triumphant act of infinite power. And he sums it up with this. The gospel is the scepter of Christ. But the power of Christ is the mover of that scepter. This gospel is the power of God to surmount all resistance and vanquish the greatest malice of that man he designs to work upon. Oh, the power of the gospel. May that affect our heart. May that capture our heart. That as a believer, when I'm struggling with the allurement of sin or struggling in the midst of hardship and difficulty, that I need the gospel proclaimed to my heart. When I'm on my deathbed, if you would, please come to me and don't talk to me about life and how wonderful it is. Talk to me about Christ's righteous life credited to my account and His death on the cross and His resurrection and the life I have in Him. Preach the gospel to me. I need the gospel. Indeed, I pray that when we love a soul that is running headlong to hell, that we would not use human means to convince, but we would proclaim the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation. A few weeks ago, I began having stomach pains that would shoot from the middle of my stomach to my hip. And there were times I couldn't stand, and I was bent over, talking like this. And my wife was like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, Gramps! air in my stomach? I don't know. I can preach if I sit. (laughs) She's like, "Uh, can I call a friend of yours who's a doctor and get his input on this? (laughs) That man came over before he went to teach his Sunday school class down at South Campus and poked and prodded and does it feel there? Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to eat a cheeseburger? These are questions that they ask to see if you're hungry or not. It helps deal with appendix. Uh, No, no thank you. He's like, well, here's the deal. You need to get in. I'll call the doctor. He called the exact doctor, the place I was going to go to, set it all up. 
Now, my wife didn't come in and say, well, you know what? I've just been around for a long time. Let me tell you why you should do this. No, she went and said, hey, I'm going to go get the guy who knows what's going on here. And, of course, I listened to him. <laughs> may we go to the gospel. When it comes to salvation, may we not tamper around with the philosophy of men. May we run to the gospel. And when we need to grow in sanctification, go to the gospel. I love Colossians chapter 1. Paul says that Epaphras came and, and discipled the, the church of Colossae and ministered to them. And he says this, that he came bringing the word of truth, which is the gospel. That is, that Genesis through Revelation focuses our attention on the gospel, and the gospel, like an atom, when it's split, explodes, and the life, Christ, points us to him, his death, his resurrection. So the word takes us to the gospel. The gospel bleeds through the word. And we love the gospel. So this power captivates the mind, convinces us of the glory of Jesus Christ, but it also captures the behavior. And we see this in verses 6 through following. It captures the behavior. Spirit-empowered gospel captures the behavior. Look with me at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This captivation of the behavior occurs as the gospel is stamped, stamped on the life with Christ. That's his point. You became imitators or mimickers of us and of the Lord. That is, as the Lord received the word in much affliction, that is, the word of the Father that he heard and declared and he dwelt on and meditated on, and as he went to the cross with the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, so we mimic the Lord. And what does this produce? Verse 7. An example. The word there is tupan. We get type out of it. Typing. It's the idea of a mark left by a blow. When a, a die strikes the image on a coin or a figure formed by blows, it's an image, a model, or pattern. And so as we look to Christ, as the Word of God impacts our hearts, the Spirit of God stamps the glory, the image of Christ, the character of Christ upon our hearts and our lives. There are two environments in which this happens. The first one is affliction. You receive the word in much affliction. It's the fires and the heat of trial that bring us low in which he stamps us with Christ. No doubt he does it in salvation when he humbles us and breaks our pride. But he does it in our sanctification as he brings weakness upon weakness upon weakness to grave the character of Jesus Christ into our lives. There is an internal environment, and that is the joy of the Holy Spirit. It is spirit-wrought joy that brings a delight in Jesus Christ internally. You see, God brings, and even for Paul, he brought a stormy cloud of affliction and persecution that followed him so that they would see clearly the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Beloved, God will do that. In your life, when you're going through struggles or hardship, God will crush every apparent foundation in your life so that you see that all you stand on and all you need for sufficiency is Jesus Christ. And the world will indeed look at your life and say, well, you have a peace because you have a career. You have a family. You have fill in the blank. And God will visit you with waves of weakness, 
to break down all those barriers and to show that Christ is the only rock. It's His grace. It's His power to communicate the glory of Christ. That's how He stamps the character of Christ in our life. That's how He captivates our behavior through the gospel. The gospel also captivates behavior not only by stamping Christ, but sounding forth Christ. We're so in love with Christ, hope in Christ, believe and rest on Christ, that the gospel bursts forth. And we see this, particularly in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. What I love about this text is that the word which belongs to the Lord and your faith, the Greek has an article, the faith. It's the faith that rests in the personal work of Christ. That's the idea. It's made personal now because of the word. The word's already impacted faith so that it's resting in Christ. And what happens? This faith, this word of Christ, the gospel is exploding everywhere so that Paul, an apostle, an apostle can say, I don't need to say anything because the gospel is just riveting from your heart. And God has placed you in every place, he says, whether it be prison or in the hospital or with family members, where the gospel goes, you go, he's bound you to it, and affliction shows the stamp of Christ in your life. The gospel sounds forth the glory of Christ. And finally, it captivates your behavior by producing service for God in view of Christ. Service for God in view of Christ. And we see this in verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So he talks about his own reception, his own ministry of service. And in chapter 2, we see that brought to bear in his life, that Paul came with spiritual integrity. He didn't come with false ulterior motives. In chapter 2, we're told that he came for the pleasure of God because he's been entrusted with the gospel. He came to care for them, not only to preach the gospel, but to impart his life for them. He came as a mother, cares for her children. And all of this is because of the ministry of the gospel in Paul's own life. And that was being proclaimed as well. But notice the Thessalonians. He continues. Verse 9, how you turned, it's a word for repentance, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These are two infinitives that give us purpose statements. This gospel brought a turning to the living and true God, to Christ, to look to Him, to wait with expectancy, to look to Jesus Christ, His sovereignty. We see Him coming from the heavens to deliver from wrath. So the gospel turns the heart to fix on the living and true God and to wait for Christ to love Christ. And as it works in the heart to impress us with God and Christ, the living and true God, it turns us from idols that are dead, that captivate, that enslave, that have no power, that cannot deliver us. This is the power of the gospel, empowered by the Spirit, to stamp us with Christ, to sound forth Christ, so that we serve Christ. We have a basset hound. She's the cutest little thing you'd ever imagine. Great with kids. Very gentle, loving. She loves to cuddle. She's very affectionate. And she's fun to watch run. You think of a basset hound, these long ears, and she's running, the ears looks like she's paddling a battle or a boat or something. Just moving on. But she has a very nasty and disgusting and revolting habit. 
my wife, who was sitting here in the early service, I know, was just waiting for what I was about to say because she's like, how are you going to say this? (laughs) Well, when she's hungry, if her food bowl is not immediately there, she waits until my Belgian shepherd leaves a fresh fill-in-the-blank and she begins to eat it. And we watch as she's choking this stuff down. And you tell me (laughs) that dogs... Mouths are cleaner than humans. Please, it is revolting to see this. I've been told, someone told us, well, horses will do the same thing. In this case, apparently, she needs her food available immediately. There's only one thing that we need to turn from revolting, disgusting idols. And that is the gospel which promotes the glory and grandeur of Jesus Christ so that we feed from him, we feed from life. It is found in the gospel. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this enduring ministry in Paul's life and the Thessalonians that sustained them in the midst of affliction and hardship through the power of the gospel, meditating on the cross, meditating on the life of Christ, meditating on his resurrection, meditating on his glorious deity, Father, remind us of this sovereign grace bestowed through the gospel, promoting your great glory. Remind us of Christ, the soil from which faith and love and hope blossoms forth. And remind us of the power of the word of God to affect our minds and our behavior through Christ. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.